0: Hello, everyone. My name is Robert Winfrey, and what you're about to listen to is an old episode of a podcast I used to host called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. This particular episode features myself and Pat Mullen talking about the various incarnations of Dracula that have graced the screen, and to a slightly lesser extent, uh, literature, since that character's inception, basically, back in the day with Bram Stoker. Now... This episode originally aired on July eighteenth two thousand thirteen I bring that up only and perhaps most importantly because this was recorded before the I'll be kind uh ill conceived Dracula untold that was meant to kind of connect to the uh, the the abort at this point aborted uh, Dark universe that Universal attempted to get off the ground with its uh, classic monster villains revisiting their shared universe. They had a shared universe way back in the day. Frankenstein and the Wolfman squared off. Like, that was a thing. <laughs> uh, shared universes. Not as original as you might think. So, that won't be discussed. It took place after the fact. Uh, we have a pretty good discussion here, touching on a bunch of different variations on Dracula. Well, that Dracula Untold movie, that really did kind of, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, put a stake through the heart of that character in popular culture. There hasn't been a major uh, Dracula movie since, which is kind of a shame. Uh, As you'll hear in our discussion, Dracula is an interesting character with a lot of different ways you can interpret him. Uh, But, before we get back in, before I throw to that particular episode... Let's pay a couple of bills. First up, in our sponsorship list, Grammarly is a sponsor of the W2M network here. For you listeners of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy's re-airing episodes, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. If you're interested to download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash w2mnetwork. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash w2mnetwork to download Grammarly for free. If you don't wish to type that into a search bar, click the link below. There is a link in the description uh, below this podcast slash video. It's audio only, but it's on YouTube, so... In the description, there's a link. If you're interested, give it a click. Grammarly is a very, very useful tool. I encourage you to try it. Our second sponsor is Amazon Music. Dracula has usually been associated with uh, more classical organ music, even, in some cases. Uh, So if you would like to peruse a large selection of songs, including stuff from any of the various movies that are discussed here in this podcast, Amazon Music has a library of over 70 million songs if you want it it's there uh with almost i mean i can't say 100% cuz you'll find the one song and then get mad at me but with that a library that extensive a great search function uh and just the best for my money S- music streaming service available right now if you're interested in having a free 30 days on us, you pay nothing and you get 30 days of this wonderful service, get amazonmusic.com slash w2mnetwork. There's a link as well in the description below. Fill out the little survey That's uh, It's not a survey, really. So let them know that we sent you there. That helps us. That helps Amazon. And that helps you get 30 days of the best music streaming on the internet for free. After that, if you like it, keep it. If not... You've lost nothing you have gained you have only gained there's no downside to this particular offer, so give that a click if you are so inclined and with that out of the way, myself and Pat Mullen back in the year two thousand and thirteen talking about Dracula, take it away, fellas. <laughs>
1: that in just a moment. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am your host, Robert Winfrey, here on Everyone Loves a Villain. Yes, I did change the name for this particular episode for a pretty specific reason. You see, to me, a bad guy isn't always necessarily evil. That's why there's so much fun, because there can be some redeeming qualities in them. And they can fall into a lot of different categories. For example, when we talked about the Hulk and the Hulk's enemies and the James Bond villains there's a lot of them so they're all just kind of bad guys when you're talking about one specific entity in this particular case the most prolific well-known villain of all time in the form of Dracula it's a villain it's just the one guy so i altered the title just a little bit to kind of reflect my feelings also i'm kind of lazy so you never know which way i went but as I just said, tonight we're talking Dracula. Most iconic, most discussed, most recognizable villain in the history of villains. Everyone knows Dracula. But I'm not alone on this one, thankfully. Although in an ironic twist, my lo- the podcast I did by myself on Hannibal Lecter still has the most listened as far as this particular series goes. And all of the Radlichen broadcasting shows for the last several months. Ha, I got you all beat. By myself. Maybe I don't need anyone. Interesting thought. But I do have a guest here. He was here last week when we talked about other vampires, all non-Dracula vampires, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He insisted on coming here for Dracula. He made threats against my person if I didn't invite him onto this particular episode. So please welcome back, Pat Mullen. How you doing there, Pat?
2: Not always proud, but I'm always loud. Well, you're from New York, right? That kind of goes without saying. Yes, indeed. Happy to be co-piloting right. this journey on the Demeter.
1: Oh, good. I'm glad to have you. You and I share similar tastes in a lot of things, and it's nice, but we can also disagree without degenerating into a shouting match at each other for 15 minutes. So, you insisted on being here for Dracula. When did you get exposed to Dracula? What was your first kind of exposure? How did you come to enjoy the character? Give us a brief dissertation on, your, on how you came to your position as far as Dracula specifically is concerned.
2: I think, like most people the the first exposure you have to them is as a kid watching you know certain iterations of monster movies and the fact of the matter is there's so many interpretations of Dracula through so many actors that it, it's almost impossible not to see a Dracula movie if you're into the movies at all by the time you're you know five or six years old, depending on how much leeway your parents give you with what you watch or watch it with you and you know that was the case. The first Dracula movie I'd ever seen was. Featuring Bella Lugosi in the title role, and from there it snowballed into kind of every other iteration there was. From there, it's sp- it spun off into the Marvel comic series *Tomb of Dracula* that ran for you know 70 plus issues, and then I actually, when I was older, I could read the actual original Dracula novel by Bram Stoker, and kind of all these different you know various ways he's popped up in the Castlevania video game series and he's crossed hats with almost every literary hero in the public domain that you can imagine. And some that aren't from Sherlock Holmes to Solomon Kane to even the X-Men. So it's pretty hard not to get caught up in Dracula at some point. If you're just you know, aware of pop culture at all. I believe he had a series of comic
1: books with Batman trying to catch him, which is yeah, great. They
2: even published a series with Batman. It's a trilogy they did called the Batman blood trilogy where, Uh, Probably, I believe the first one was Batman, Dracula, Red Rain, and they did three volumes of it. It just, I think that's a great contrast to have Batman and Dracula,
1: especially that particular version where he's trying to capture him because, you know, Dracula kills people and drinks their blood because he's a bad guy, folks. For as many times as he's been portrayed in other movies by other actors as a tragic, romantic hero, you know, he's a bad guy. He's the guy who'll tear your throat out if you feel... I first read the novel by Stoker before I got into too many of the books I mean, or the other movies. I was aware of his presence. I'd seen him, but my, I absolutely love that book. I mean, the way it's formatted with as a series of journal entries and letters is just, it's a great format for it. It's paced very well. There's a couple of things in there that, as far as vampire lore, have been kind of left by the wayside over the years, and in some cases for better. I mean, like we discussed last time, the you know, that... A vampire can only, you know, they can't cross running water, or the tide has to be going in or out when they, just some odd things that he put in there that, again, have kind of fallen out of favor because they're so bizarre. But the main stuff is still there, you know, the garlic and the wolf's bane and the shape-shifting, the sunlight. Although Dracula can actually be in sunlight, he's just significantly depowered. I I absolutely love the book. It's one of my all-time favorites. I could reread it. If I had one book to read forever, that would be high on my list.
2: Without a so, doubt. And actually, the first time the first time I read Dracula, I had taken out Dracula's novel from the library, and I took out Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And you know, Dracula is just so much better written than you know I could say about Frankenstein. I thought the actual novel Frankenstein was a mess and just a chore to get through. Dracula was a delight, and so yeah, I really got hooked from that point on. Is this is the character I'm going to go to? I I do enjoy Mary
1: Shelley's Frankenstein. I love the story. I agree that as far as how it's written, there are some issues, but to anyone who's just seen the Universal monster movies with Boris Karloff as the creature, they're nothing like the book. The book is actually kind of heart-wrenching when you get into it, and I, I like that too, but as far as just what I'd like to read, I much prefer reading Dracula. Now after a brief history lesson Dracula was published became a big success pretty much right away. I mean that that wasn't one of those novels that sat around for years and collected dust like Moby Dick did. I mean, you know, there are tons of stories of authors that have their greatest work discovered posthumously and thankfully Dracula wasn't quite that bad as far as being discovered goes, but the Stoker estate had a copyright on all of on Dracula and all of its properties and rights and actually one of the films we talked about last week Nosferatu which features Count Orlok who's basically Dracula but they changed the name they changed a couple of names and a few locations and said it wasn't Dracula the Stoker estate sued they won they all of the existing copies were supposed to be destroyed thankfully they weren't because again Nosferatu's a great movie but the first approved version as far as movies go that we got was the Universal Version, which starred Bela Lugosi in the title role. Now, crazy bit of trivia for you, for you all out there. Bela Lugosi played vampire, played not vampire, played Count Dracula twice. He's best remembered for that role. He's the go-to depiction of that role. Still, after all these years, the quintessential Dracula. He played the role twice, and one of those was in the comedy Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein or meet. Meet Frank, yeah, I believe it's Meet Frankenstein and The Wolfman. Great comedy. If you like, if you, I saw it when I was a kid. I absolutely, I absolutely loved it. It's a great comedy movie. But here was a guy who played this role a grand total of two times and remains the. I mean, years and years later. The original came out in the 20s, and here it is, 2013. He's still the go-to Dracula. That's amazing to me. So, uh, Pat, your thoughts on? Let's just stick with the Dracul with the nineteen twenty seven Dracula movie and Lugosi's version of Dracula.
2: Yeah, and I, I know that initially Lugosi who he got he got started in the role on the stage play that they had done prior to the film. And he wasn't initially the choice to be cast in the movie until he did the reading and really what won them over was his accent because they felt like this added something so different to the character that they wanted to keep him and I, I think that the Dracula film, as a film for its time, especially with the effects portion of it, is kind of an overlooked gem in this day and age where everything we have with CGI. Uh, everybody who's seen the movie knows the spiderweb scene where Dracula welcomes Renfield to his castle and Dracula walks up his flight of stairs and seemingly passes directly through a, a huge spiderweb. Renfield tries to do the same and, of course, gets caught up in it. Uh, and you know, such a great effect. But the the movie as a whole is not completely faithful to the novel. But I think what they uh, it did misses was the is the whole third the best... act.
1: As far yeah. as if, if we're going one to one, there is no third act
2: from the book to the movie, as far as that one is concerned. Yeah, and for a movie, it's relatively short in length. Uh, it, it's under you know, it's under ninety minute runtime. It's barely over an hour, really. But it, it, it does a good job of taking the best parts of the books that they could do at the time and putting them on the film. Yes, some characters were omitted. Some characters were condensed into one, you know, as a combination of two or more characters being put into one role. But but ultimately, you know, Lugosi's portrayal is what's always remembered best about that movie, and for good reason, because he really found a way to charm you as this evil, menacing character and put fear into you, despite the fact that at the time they never showed him with fangs, they never showed him actually feeding or showed blood on the screen. Lugosi's presence as an actor really brought that character to visual life for people for the first time. And that's why I think even though he's only played the role twice, he's really the guy that the majority of people think of. When they think of Dracula, they don't think of the novel or some other actors who've played him. It's Bella Lugosi with the widow's peak hair, the dinner suit, and the accent, good evening. That's all they see. You know, And it's absolutely true. And it's kind of a... Sh- I mean, the guy was
1: buried at his own request, mind you. He was buried wearing the cape of Dracula. And it's an absolute crying shame that the last movie he ever appeared in was Cloud 9 from Outer... Well, Cloud 9, Plan 9 from Outer Space, which is historically one of the worst movies ever. And when you... And Lugosi and other horror films can be quite... He's still quite an intimidating presence. He's still, I mean, White Zombie, where he plays the zombified voodoo master. He plays not a bad guy. um, I forget the title of the movie, but one in Technicolor, where he's got a little person as his sidekick, and the story's being narrated by a woman who's dead and on the slab, and it, it deals a lot with hypnosis. It's a fun movie, but he's still remembered as Dracula, and it's amazing that when you consider all the other iterations, I mean, when I talked about Hannibal Lecter, I talked about, you know, there've only been a few other people besides Anthony Hopkins to play the role, and he's still the definitive one. But you know, again, Silence of the Lambs came out in 1992, if memory serves me, and it's so it hasn't been you know going on a hundred years, and we're still talking about Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter. I think we will, but that's a different issue. The point here is it has been almost a hundred years, and we still think of Bela Lugosi, despite I mean, Dracula is. Well, okay, the character of Dracula is in the realm of public domain. Anybody can use him however they want to, and sometimes it's been very, very, very bad. I mean, there are some bad versions of Dracula that we're going to get to in just a minute here, but it's still all about Bela Lugosi. Now, I'm just curious, do you think that has to do with, just in this case, just being the first, being the being the one that everyone remembers, or was... In your opinion, was he just that good in the role? I feel he was just that good in the role of Dracula that if Bela Lugosi were alive today and they cast him as Dracula, they could do it, and you could even get, you know, the kind of the graphic and bloody effects that we get nowadays in film, and he'd still probably be
2: the best Dracula.
1: I mean, that's my two cents. I'm curious as to your opinion.
2: I I think it's a little bit of a combination of both. I I absolutely do think he was marvelous in the role, and and all the praise that he's gotten for it over the years is well-deserved. But I do think it was a bigger deal you know, to people because it was the first time they were doing a licensed portrayal of Dracula. And it was really the first time it was brought out. I do think that stands to help his cause as to why people remember him. It was a universal picture, which means it's one of, you know, it's one of the biggest studios around at the time. It's the definitive monster movie studio in the United States during the golden era of the universal monster films. And, and you know, it, really it's Dracula. It's the name of It's, there's no other Dracula film just titled Dracula that's had the impact or the lasting effect of that. It's the definitive film for a lot of people for that reason. Whenever you say, I want to rent Dracula, you're talking about the Bela Lugosi Dracula film, and that's what everybody points to. But but I do think that a to lot be of it has to took do me, with...
1: I had someone hand me the 1979 version or 82 version with Frank Langella once.
2: One time, but uh, you know, <laughs> okay, well, yeah, you whenever yeah, I want time. to
1: rent Dracula. <laughs> I, I want to touch on that later when we talk about good versions of Dracula, because I enjoyed it. But
2: yeah, they're going to give you the Bela Lugosi version <laughs> most of the time. Yeah. The clerk at the video store is going to hand you the black and white film with Bela Lugosi and Dwight Fry until you have a good night. And But but Lugosi has such a magnetism in that performance and really just kind of, no pun intended, sunk his teeth into that role to such an effect that he stayed with people for that reason where... And I agree, Uh, you know, even if he wasn't the first guy playing it, his iteration would still be amongst the very best, if not the best, because of how well he did in that role and made it his own. To the point where other actors who've played the role have really done a... They haven't really played Dracula so much as they've tried to play Lugosi playing Dracula, is the best way to say it, I guess.
1: That's a very common complaint with a great portrayal like that one. I mean, I hate to bring it up again, but... I mentioned a couple of times when talking about Hannibal Lecter that, as far as, in particular, Gaspard Julio, who played young Hannibal in Hannibal Rising, it didn't. It seemed like he was playing a caricature. It seemed like he was doing what uh, he was trying to play a young Anthony Hopkins playing Dracula, as opposed to. Again, I apologize for backtracking here, but Mads Mikkelsen on television is playing Hannibal Lecter. It's not Anthony Hopkins Hannibal Lecter. It's his own version. But so often, when you have a great role like that and a great performance, you don't get guys doing their own version of it. You get people... I mean, when the, I believe I mentioned this before, but when it was announced that The Office was becoming a U.S. series after the British one had found so much success, a lot of the people who auditioned for the role of Michael Scott were not trying to play Michael Scott. They were doing a Ricky Gervais impersonation, playing the boss from the British series, the BBC version of the series. And it. It's a credit to those actors who are able to do something different with the role. They're not just playing Lugosi, playing Dracula. And sometimes that comes off very good, and sometimes it comes off very bad. And we'll get to the very bad in just a minute here. But, uh, again, just... When you have a great performance like that, it is so difficult for an actor at times not to just be Lugosi being Dracula, but to actually be Dracula. And since we're talking about bad versions, and one in particular I want to talk about, as far as it seems like someone playing Bella Lugosi playing Dracula, I have such a love-hate relationship with this movie. I mean, it's it's crazy when you think about it. But oh, what year was it? I got the list here. You think I could find it? Okay, in 2004. There was a movie released called uh, Van Helsing. It stars Hugh Jackman in the titular role of Van Helsing. It has it's done by the same people who brought us The Mummy and The Mummy Returns. A couple of my favorite, you know, just action movies of all time. Uh, unfortunately, their version of Dracula is just so bad. Richard Roxburgh is just over the top. He's aping Lugosi's accent. He has no menace. At all to him, and it's such a huge, because here's Dracula who's supposed to be scary, he's actually trying to unleash his children to conquer the world, and there's no sense of menace, there's no sense of, uh, of anything really that comes out of him other than, he's Dracula, so he's what Van Helsing is hunting. I mean, I want, I don't know, you've probably seen it, I mean, we've seen a lot of movies and sometimes bad ones in this particular case. I love watching that movie as just kind of a popcorn movie, but as a fan of Dracula or werewolves or Frankenstein in some cases, it's just no, 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 bad movie. But, you know, feel free to, you know, help me lambast that
2: particular performance,
1: because I have nothing good to say about it. Yeah,
2: I I don't off the top of my head recall Richard Roxborough and much else, but, and, and that's maybe intentional on my part because after seeing him butcher the role of Dracula and Van Helsing,
0: it, it was uh, the pretty The only tough
2: other to thing
1: that I him. recall with him off the top of my head was he played the uh, uh, the number two, the number one henchman for Dugray Scott's
2: character in the second Mission Impossible. But that's it. Well, uh, and again, not really a memorable performance for the right reasons in that movie by anyone. But that's another podcast for another day. Uh, But yeah, you know, with the Mummy series, they, they tried to turn it into more of an action genre film because they felt that they wouldn't sell the horror quite as well in the present day and age, and that was the initial thought behind Van Helsing, and what you got the result there is it's trying to be half action movie, half homage to the Universal Monsters, but what it does is it really mocks the Universal Monster film franchise, and people who are fans of it certainly by no means were happy with the portrayals of the Wolfman and the Frankenstein monster, and even the title character of Van Helsing himself with Hugh Jackman, who's a, a terrific actor. But the Richard Roxborough performance of Dracula is really a bad caricature of all of the previous Draculas we've seen, kind of rolled into one with Lugosi having the most heavy influence on it and not in a good way. Uh, there's been some bad portrayals of Dracula over the years. That one's certainly very close to the top of the list. Because it's so hammy is the best word I can use. It's really clearly not taken seriously at all, and it, it he, he almost plays a, a comic book bad guy from the Silver Age in the '60s where he has to spell out every line of his master plan before going ahead with it. And you know it, you're almost waiting for him for the sound effects of bam, Pal, and biff to come in whenever there's an action scene with him. It was it was meant to be more fun for the action genre it came off as very tamp and hammy in the performance and just not enjoyable at all, really, for me. I mean, as far as just like being a popcorn
1: movie that I can watch and, you know, kind of turn your brain off to use that particular expression, which I'm not always a fan of, but, but, you know, I don't hate it as far as that goes. I mean, for the same reason, uh, I can enjoy the Roland Emmerich version of Godzilla. As long as I don't think of it as a Godzilla movie, I can kind of enjoy it. When I think of it as a Godzilla movie, it pisses me off to no end but that same time frame that just the 2000s have not been a very good year for dracula the the whole decade is just not you don't get a whole lot of good stuff coming out of here i mean the other one i want to talk about specifically as far as bad versions go and this has more to do with the movie itself than necessarily dracula's portrayal in it but the version of Dracula portrayed by Dominic Purcell in the 2004 movie Blade Trinity. Oh, that movie is just so bad on so many levels. I mean, we mocked it a bit last week, but I want you to kind of have a field day with this one for a minute here. Tell me what you hate, what you don't like about that. And since again, we're specifically talking about Dracula, touch on that particular character as well.
2: Well, my, my dislike for that goes even deeper than your average Dracula fan, because Like I said, part of what I got into is Dracula, where the Tomb of Dracula comic book series from Marvel Comics, which the Blade series is taken from. And in terms of the source material, at one point, you know, one of the main characters was a character named Frank Drake, who is a modern-day descendant of the Count and is part of the crew that tries to hunt him down and look for him. Dracula uses the name Drake as a modern-day alias. But really, in in this movie, you know... Part of the charm of Dracula, to a lesser extent, and we we talk about, yes, he is a complete villain, but part of the charm of him is that he's such a dynamic personality and has such a presence. Dominic Purcell is a good actor. Uh, You know, Prison Break was a very good series in its its early stages. I actually actually discovered,
1: uh, I don't mean to cut you off there, but I agree, I mean, until they started getting into the conspiracy and... All of that stuff that really just kind of drugged the show down. And, and Wentworth Miller, I felt, was a big part of that. But I actually discovered Dominic Purcell on the uh, one season run of the television show John Doe, which I, I'm i a sucker for kind of oddball, suspense, supernatural ish television shows. I mean, I grew up watching The X Files. So,
0: you know, I mean, even short
1: lived stuff like Miracles or. Millennium. I mean, I'm name-dropping some odd ones there, but you you get what I mean. So I enjoyed that show. I was sad when it was canceled, and you're right, he's a fine actor, and I apologize for kind of cutting you off there. So, resume your point. No,
2: No, no. No worries. And he's a fine actor, but for a lot of the movie, they have him very solemn and brooding and not really the focal point of what's going on. It seems like he is more about making faces and menacing gestures, but they never really give him a chance to shine. And at the rare points they do, the, the movie is kind of all over the place in, in respect to the characters and giving them a chance to break through in certain scenes and gain some momentum with the audience. And any time it almost looked to the point where Dracula's character would get something going in the movie in terms of drawing you in with interest, they'd immediately cut the legs out from under and be it with either bad dialogue courtesy of david goyer who is very hit and miss or or just bad direction with jump cutting to another scene and it almost felt like a complete waste of the character particularly the final encounter between himself blade the hunters you know referred to
1: as the night stalkers it's got ryan reynolds in it it can't be that's just kind of my opinion as far as that goes Believe it or not, that's the reason I'm not seeing R.I.P.D. over the weekend, is because I don't like Ryan Reynolds. And not even the awesomeness of Jeff Bridges can overcompensate.
2: I have
1: but... I have... I actually liked the basic thought process behind Dracula, receded, removed himself from the world because he was disgusted with how people live. And for him to... And it's an interesting premise as far as the character goes, because... For him to have been become disgusted with people, you know, thousands of years ago, you can only imagine how he'd feel coming into modern society and walking by. I mean, that I actually really like that scene when he's walking into the shop that sells all Dracula merchandise, and he's just kind of looking around and it's just like, what the hell happened here? But you know, it, it's I agree. They never let the character, you know, kind of generate any momentum. I mean, the sequence when he's holding the baby on the rooftop talking to Blade. And just the way he kind of mentions that, well, perhaps when we, ne- perhaps the next time we meet, you will kill me, and then he just kind of gets, this, but I really don't think so. And then he tosses the baby at Blade, and yeah, you know, there's just no follow-up, like you said, with any of that. And it's just, it's so sad because you could have gotten such a better movie out of just increasing Dracula. Because you know, we one of the reasons I started this is that you know, a hero's only as good as his villain. A a great hero with a bad villain becomes forgettable. I mean. And that holds true across, you know, all kinds of mediums. I mean, Superman has Lex Luthor, which we talked about for two hours, his bad guys and why Luthor gets remembered so much. Dusty Rhodes had Ric Flair and the Four Horsemen, and that's still remembered fondly for a reason. And, I mean, that, that was a big, that was, you know, with that one, Blade becomes less interesting because you've got kind of a weak version of Dracula. Hugh Jackman's Van Helsing is less interesting because Richard Roxburgh's Dracula is so bad. And it's just it, it's a real sad thing when you try when you have something like that. I mean, if you have Dracula in a movie, a lot's riding on Dracula. It's just kind of by the nature of the beast. And when you have someone, be it the actor or the director or the writing that can't hold up to that, everything else suffers. It doesn't just. I mean, it's not like oh it was bad so but other things can make up for it. It's if that's bad, everything else suffers a lot. And that's and. and That's a big thing for me. As far as a good villain is what makes a movie or a franchise or anything like that. And you know, when you've got, uh, I when you have people like that and you have movies like that, it just it hurts and it hurts a lot as far as just the overall presentation of the product. Uh, And yeah, it's just it's not good. Um, So uh, we've heard a couple of mine that I absolutely dislike. How about you? What 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 versions of Dracula spring to your mind that make you go? God, I wish they had not let this slip into public domain because now any idiot with a camera can make a Dracula movie. Did I lose you there? Yeah, I lost him. Hang on. Pat will be right back. There he is. Sorry, do you need me to repeat any of that? You dropped for a second there.
2: No, no I heard you pretty clear, Robert. Um, You know, and okay, just sorry before I get that. into. Not not a problem. And just before I get into my point about a bad Dracula portrayal, you know, one of the points you made is a hero being only as interesting as the villain, as long as the villain can hold up their end. Dracula is one of the few villains who's really more known than his his arch nemesis, whereas everybody knows Sherlock Holmes, not everybody knows Moriarty, everybody knows Dracula, not everybody really knows Van Helsing, or whichever iteration of Van Helsing he's battling at the time, and so it's so important to give him that leeway to work with, and, you know, play Trinity, just chat all over that, but as far as bad iterations of Dracula go, you know, we, we touched on some, but In 2000, Wes Craven presented Dracula 2000, and I think there was potential there for the story. Rather than go with the established story of Dracula being Vlad Tepes, the Impaler, they went another way and kind of alluded to Dracula being Judas Iscariot, who had betrayed Jesus Christ, and that would explain why he was so hated, uh, why he had such a hatred for religion, specifically Christianity, and why silver affected him so much, because if you don't know the story, uh, Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So silver tends to be very symbolic in certain instances. But the problem is, they don't ever really try to establish that fact hard until the last five seconds of the movie or so. And even yeah, they then, go it's with, not, uh, well,
1: they make a lot of the other movie about the main characters trying to figure out why he's averse to silver or who he really is. Or who he was before he became Dracula, that's why... Oh, who was it who played the original Van Helsing in that movie? Give me a second, let me click the button here. Great actor, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, why can't I? Uh, Christopher Plummer. Jeez, you'd think I'd remember Christopher Plummer of all people. But now, he plays the uh, aged Abraham Van Helsing, keeping himself alive by injecting blood that leeches have pulled out of Dracula to find who he is so he can eventually kill him. And, you know, I actually didn't dislike Gerard Butler in the role of Dracula. I'm, I'm personally a huge fan of, of Gerard Butler's. I mean,
2: yeah,
1: for some, you know, I mean, that's not one of those things I can necessarily explain off the top of my head, but I'm a big fan of the guy. I actually went back and watched Dracula 2000 just because I found out it was him that played Dracula in that particular movie. And the movie itself is just, you know, it, it kind of iterates or hammers home that Wes Craven is kind of hit or miss as far as what he chooses to present and the director Patrick Lussier is, um, well, I don't think much, but anyway, continue your point. I apologize. I keep cutting you off.
2: Yeah. And the, you know, for a movie about Dracula, they, they don't give him all that much screen time in it. It's more focused on Van Helsing's estranged daughter, uh, who, you know, and her friend uh, who are kind of filling in the roles to an extent of Nina, Murray and Lucy Harker, uh, from, the original uh... novel to to an extent they're kind of their spiritual predecessors uh... they never really go into explaining how dracula can pick up you know where van helsing's daughter is and how he shares a mental bond with her because apparently the blood that dracula can touch from somebody leads you him to track whoever is a direct blood descendant of them in some kind of weird odd way i have no idea how that works they don't actually bother trying to explain it they don't bother to try explaining how, you know, the Abraham Van Helsing character knows what he knows. It's very mishmash, very all over the place, and Dracula himself is very much an enigma in the film, which, you know, Dracula is always an enigma in films to some extent, but one that you know enough about. In this one, they're very all over the place with the mythos of the vampires and what works, what doesn't, and it's it, it, there's just no consistency, and because of that, your main antagonist, who the movie is really, who's really the central character of the film, gets nothing to work with. And aside from a few good killing scenes, there's not much scenery that Dracula has in this movie worth watching. And that's a shame because Gerard Butler as Dracula on paper is a home run.
1: Yeah, I, I was really disappointed as far as how the movie was constructed and presented. Uh, speaking of bad versions. We do have to, we would be remiss not to mention the utter dreck that is Dracula 3000.
2: <laughs> uh, speaking of spiritual predecessors.
1: Uh, go ahead, Hit.
2: <laughs>
1: uh, okay, yeah, it looks going- so bad that it's been said that by comparison, any other movie looks better. Than, I mean, I've seen it, and I, I mean... One of the things that bugs me about it is, first of all, they call the movie Dracula 3000, and yet we don't get Dracula, we get Count Orlock as, as the main vampire. Which I mean, that whole movie is just so bad from start to finish. I mean,
2: you would can tell be that,
1: some way to enjoy a
2: movie about vampires featuring Coolio and Tiny Zeus Lister. No, there's you'd not. You think, but no, no, there's just nothing. There's like nothing redeemable about that entire movie. Yeah, even Erica I mean, Laniak, who was a total babe back in the day, had fallen on hard times and wasn't the prize to look at like she was just some years ago.
1: Yeah, oh, that
2: whole that whole movie, you get so little Dracula
1: in that. It seemed like, and it seemed like they were just trying to essentially copy the formula of the movie Alien, where you bring the evil thing on board, it slowly stalks and kills everyone, so you don't have to see it all that much. But I mean. The fact that this movie took its inspiration from Alien almost makes me wish Alien wasn't made, and I love that movie, just so we didn't have this. I mean, that's how bad I consider it. That movie
2: was Alien meets Leprechaun in space meets Jason X, and what resulted out of a one-night, drunken, ecstasy-filled romp. Oh, it must be, because it's exponentially less watchable than any of those combined.
1: And, and I would two rather... out of
2: three of those are just not very good.
1: To say the I, least. Yeah, I mean I'd rather watch Warwick Davis in space than anything to do with this movie, which is just sad. I mean, and I uh, I love Warwick Davis. I mean, as an actor, I think he's a very good actor. I mean, not to just because he's a little person.
2: No, Willow's but,
1: fantastic and a lot of that has to do with him, but you know, again, you, you can only do so much with what they give you. Yeah. And, you know, Jason X is not a very good slasher movie, especially not a good Jason movie, but there's some campy fun to be had there, I feel. But uh, Jason will be the subject of a much longer podcast, probably sometime in October. Uh, I'll be guest spot- During the month of October, I'll be guest spotting on Long Road to Ruin with Sean Comer discussing the Hellraiser franchise while Mark Rutledge takes a vacation. And during that time, I'm going to try and get him on here to talk about Freddy, Jason, Michael Myers, all the big horror icons and whatnot. So, I, I have very little doubt that we will be discussing uh, Jason X again, and not in pleasant terms. There's not a whole lot that's good about it. <laughs> but uh, And just one more that I almost hate to bring up, because I so love Jack Palance. But Jack Palance played Dracula in a 1973 movie, Bram Stoker's Dracula. And that, to me, is just such an odd casting choice, for Jack Palance to be Dracula, I mean that's almost as bad as well, like I mean that that's gotta be like one of those epically bad casting choices like John Wayne as Genghis Khan. Or I forget who they got to play like oh, who was it? Whoever they got to play um Che Guevara in the first biopic that they made about him was just I mean just these horribly bad casting decisions. I mean the I,
2: 1973 Yeah, go ahead, sorry, go ahead. I think the thought process is that Jack Palance, while he's a he's a terrific actor can be a scary man to look at without any effects. He's a very intimidating guy because, A, he's so big, and, B, he just has a hard face that looks like, you know, it's it's had a, a, a small mine shaft being blown up on it. And so they put fangs on him and immediately feel that Jack Palance with fangs will be even scarier than normal Jack Palance.
1: Yeah, it just, I don't know, that whole thing, part of the problem was... First of all, as much as I love the works of Richard Matheson, he kind of suffers when he writes screenplays. I feel the same way about uh, Thomas Harris. I felt a big problem with Hannibal Rising the movie was that they got him to write the screenplay
2: in addition to I the think novel. Math- yeah, I think Richard Matheson works better when he's left to his own devices to work with his own mythology and characters that he's created. When he's taking somebody else's work and has to modify it, I don't think the end product is what it should be. Well,
1: to be fair, that is one. Of, they also, I mean, you you mentioned that they went to the effort of making Jack Palance, you know, who's, like I said, an intimidating guy. Here's Jack Palance being scary, and they try to paint him as a tragic character instead of an evil character, and it's just.
2: I suppose yeah, if I've you want to know... Jack Palance
1: cry until that moment, and uh, that's, that's an image that scares you for all the wrong reasons. Jack Palance should never cry. He sweats from his eyes. I mean, come on, people. But if you want to know kind of how that particular thing came about, it was produced by Dan Curtis, who also produced the original uh, Dark Shadows. So that,
2: and the that explains any
1: of where Matheson. the... Sorry, go ahead. And the Night Stalker with Richard Matheson, another vampire movie. yeah. But it explains kind of where his thought process is, as far as that goes. Well, unless I think of something else that's really bad between now and the, between now and the end of. Oh, wait, I do need one more that's just campy and bad. There's a couple of these actually. Um, we touched on the Fearless Vampire Killers, directed by Roman Polanski, last week, and Ferdy Main as Dracula. Well, he's not actually Dracula. He's Count Von Krocklock. But I mean, which is a play on Count Orlock, who was actually Dracula. The argument can be made that all vampires are essentially Dracula, but the other one I think we should touch briefly on Ferdy main's admittedly humorous performance in Fearless Vampire Killers and the rather bizarre turn that John Carradine took in Billy the Kid versus Dracula. So oh, Billy your thoughts the kid on of
2: them? <laughs> oh my God! Sorry, you know Billy the Kid versus Dracula? Oh, bring me back to the days of TNT's Monster Vision with Joe Bob Briggs. Oh yeah, I'm going old school. It's shown as a double feature, usually, along with Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. Naturally. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, John, John Carradine is a, another guy who's a fine actor, but I think he looked at this movie as something that was as ludicrous as it could get and just decided to have uh, just a blast doing this. He looked like he was drunk in a couple of scenes. Maybe they wanted that to be bloodlust, but it looked as if he'd had a few glasses of Merlot before the was shot and I, I, one of the things I remember more than anything from that movie about it is that at random times when Dracula was about to feed he would have just glaring red eyes and then they would just cut away and not actually show you the good stuff the budget was too low they couldn't afford to show you the good stuff yeah and, and just again you know weird western is it's own genre where they have a ton of movies along those lines uh, but who could forget the John classic Tarry- that was oh what was it
1: you know, it'll come to me in a minute. Keep going. I'll I'll figure out what I was thinking of.
2: John Caradine as the top-hatted, goatee Dracula kind of, j- j- you know, he looked very much the the part of a, a Snidely Whiplash as opposed to a Dracula, which hurt him a little bit in my eyes. And granted, the movie is supposed to be a campy, fun movie in the vein of Batman the 60s TV series, but or Batman I, I don't know Robin. that there's a whole or Batman and Robin. But I don't know that there's a whole lot of redeemable qualities to that movie other than geez, this is bad but it's only to the point where you can watch about the first 15 minutes or so before you're like this is just a waste of my time, it's not even entertaining bad anymore
1: Yeah, and in that same vein uh, the released in 1957, The Blood of Dracula, which was basically th- this was done by the same people that did I Was a Teenage Werewolf the film was basically I Was a Teenage Dracula and it just makes your skin crawl to think about it and it didn't even have Michael Landon. I know. I mean, come on. Who was, of course, the teenage werewolf. He could have been one of only two people to play the werewolf and Dracula, because Lon Chaney Jr. also played Dra- well, the son of Dracula in the titled movie Son of Dracula. Who winds up being Dracula anyway?
2: Spoiler alert. Sorry.
1: Yeah, the movie came out in, what, 1943?
2: Yes. <laughs> We're spoiling a movie that's older than most of the people listening. Yes, but, you know even more of a chance that they haven't seen it at that point because today's culture has no tolerance for culture of the past and works of art such as Son of Dracula, where he uses the clever alias Alucard, which is, I believe, the first time in anything they use the name Alucard as an alias for Dracula. And it goes on to become the Son of Dracula. Uh, other
1: iterations of Dracula use that as an alias. It's a pretty big deal. And, yeah, it's there are some good ones in there. And to your point about John Carradine, um, you know, in... We talked about him. He looks more with whiplash than Dracula. I can't get over that. He actually had a couple of good turns as Dracula in House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. I mean, he's actually a pretty good, he's a talented actor, and when given the right material, he produced a pretty decent Dracula. But, you know, I, I suppose even actors have to get paychecks every now.
2: You know what's interesting is he, he played a role on the 70s detective series McCloud, and for, I'm really dating myself on that one. Uh, Dennis Weaver played the title character, McCloud, in one episode, there's a rash of serial killings that look to be the work of a vampire, and there's a man claiming to be Count Dracula, played by John Carradine, and to be honest, I enjoy him in that episode of McCloud more than any of his terms in film, because I think they let good doing, you know, just, just using veteran acting techniques to, from, like, you know, the real older methods of of the talented vaudeville days that you don't see anymore and just can chew up scenery, but in a good way.
1: Yeah, an actor, you know, we use the, the phrase scene-chewing as a negative nine times out of ten because people don't, it seems like people don't know how to do it properly anymore. I mean, if you look at Jack Nicholson in the 1989 Batman, he chews all kinds of scenery, but it's in a good way, it's a memorable way, as opposed to, you know, Guys who just choose scenery because they're hungry. I I I think I kind of the I'm same thing. You. <laughs> I mean, you can say kind of the same thing about Anthony Hopkins as Odin in the first Thor movie. He chose some scenery, but it's not in a detracting way necessarily. It, it, it is kind of a lost art to choose scenery and better the movie because of it. Be a detriment. And since we've talked about all the bad versions, we have to talk about the good portrayals of Dracula. Now, the one we touched on briefly that I want to touch on again here, the 1979 version with Frank Langella as Dracula, it's a bit more. It's a bit more just like a remake of the 1931 Dracula, but I actually really like Langella as Dracula. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I like Frank Langella. I first saw him. Okay, I'm going to. this might be a bit of an odd phrase, you know, you got to bear with me here for a minute, but he plays the bad guy in the movie Cutthroat Island, which to date I believe is the biggest box office flop of all time for a variety of reasons, one of them I feel being that the studio, Coral Co., which was in charge of distribution and promotion, was already in bankruptcy at the time and couldn't... Put effort into promoting it, and the movie unfairly, you know, it, it killed the pirate genre as a movie genre until Johnny Depp and Captain Jack Sparrow came around in *Pirates of the Caribbean: Curse of the Black Pearl*. But he plays the villain in that, and I actually really like that movie. I mean, it has—I think it has an unfair bad rap as being the biggest flop of all time because it's far from the worst movie. Ever. But that's where I got—that's where I first discovered Frank Langella and him as Dracula. I really enjoyed it. Uh, uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah,
2: Frank Langella. They, they made that movie and had Dracula really kind of back to his roots in a way after a lot of the portrayals of Dracula through the 50s, 60s, and 70s had kind of taken him further and further away from the novel's depiction. Some in good ways, some in bad ways, but with Frank Leggio, they wanted to get the character back to his roots and really kind of almost explore more with him than what they had allowed previously To to, you know, the more relaxed moral climate in 1979 and there was in 1931. And so not only is Frank Langella very good at terrifying you and being this crazy force of nature that you don't think is ever going to be stopped, he's also a very overtly sexual character. And to be honest, the way they have him play that role in the movie, I think only adds to the predatory nature of Dracula as a character. So I was really on board with what they did, even though... You know, some people claim it's to attract more of a female audience. Well, no shit, Sherlock. But it also stays true to the character's nature of being a hunter and predator. And so I really loved the way they added that element to the character. And, you know, Frank Langella is a great actor. And when you give a great actor a great role and focus on that role in the movie the way you're supposed to, you're going to get good results. And to me, you know, the, the best scene in that film, is very much towards the end, and again, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, we shouldn't have to say it, you should know that by now, we have to talk about these things, but uh, when they are on the, sh- when, you know, Parker and and Van Helsing have got him in the ship, and they encounter him in the hull, and they pull out a cross to, you know, kind of bear him away, Dracula just wraps his hand around the cross and immediately sets it to flames, because He's such a force of nature that they completely doubt their own abilities to fight him. And it shows that because the way those objects of faith will work against Dracula or other vampires of myth is that it's the faith the wielder has in the object. Their faith is so shaken by his presence that he can grab hold of it and set it aflames right in their hand. is amazing. And Dracula, you know, given a lot of leeway in the movie because they know what Frank Langella can do, where he can, in one minute have, you know, women going crazy for him, and in the next minute have them screaming and running out of the aisles because he goes from zero to 60 from the sensual kind of predator that some women get off on to the guy who's going to rip people's throats out with his teeth and enjoy every minute of it.
1: Yeah, that particular cross-sequence is also that one of my favorite parts of the movie, uh, the book, I haven't actually seen the movie yet, I need to, but of Salem's Lot. Features the priest Father Callahan confronting Barlow, and he's got this cross made of like tongue depressors or something like that that he made. And yes, it it's starts a tiny very, holding up. yeah. It, it starts out bright and strong, and it pushes Barlow back. But as Barlow just keeps talking to him and intimidating him until final until his own faith is so shaken that it loses all of its power, and he then turns him into a vampire and sends him on his way. Where he meets Go ahead, his shaman. In, throw
2: down your cross. Throw down your cross, shaman
1: where he goes on his merry way to meet his eventual fate in the Song of Susanna, for those of you who read the Dark Tower series. But, okay, since we're talking good ones, we have to talk... I mean, we can't not talk about Christopher Lee. I mean, that that would just be such a huge disservice to all things Dracula, to not talk about Christopher Lee. Now, you and I tend to have kind of similar tastes as far as this goes. Christopher Lee... Does kind of the same things that Frank Langella did in the '79 version, much earlier, in that he'll go from being the you know tall operatic voice, you know, kind of draw you in with kindness, Dracula, to bloodshot eyes and giant fangs at the drop of a hat, and it's absolutely terrifying in a lot of ways to have to see Christopher Lee as Dracula. So you kind of came up on the Hammer films. I want to hear what you have, to, your thoughts on Christopher Lee as Dracula.
2: I owe so many sleepless nights to Christopher Lee as Dracula. Sitting in my bed, holding my rosary beads as a kid, just, you know, in total fear that this guy was going to be knocking on my window looking to snack on me. Uh, and maybe that shows that my dad wasn't exactly the most responsible of parents to have me watching these movies at the ages of six and seven on my own, mind you. Uh, but, Yeah. <laughs> Christopher Lee, to to me, was the definitive Dracula for for me. He played him in Hammer Films' seven-film series, which started with Horror of Dracula that was released in 1958 and stretched through into uh, The Satanic Rites of Dracula, which I believe was released in 1973. And over the course of those 15 years, he... Oh, he actually did one more. Uh,
1: I don't know if you've seen it or not. It looks like it was pretty bad. But uh, The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires in '74.
2: Yeah, that that's a loose one that technically is not part of the same series. Um, that that involves seven you know, uh, not ninja brothers, but seven gifted martial arts brothers fighting against seven vampires of lore led by the Dracula character who isn't really the Dracula. It, it's very complicated and not very good unfortunately, but uh, the, the, the Hammer films to me were the definitive Dracula series and the majority of that has to do with Christopher Lee's portrayal of the Count and the, the initial film horror of Dracula is in many ways the you know the same movie that they made with Bela Lugosi. They they incorporate a little bit more from the novel into it, like the character of Arthur Holmwood, who's portrayed by Michael Go, who would best be known as Alfred in the Tim Burton Batman films. Uh, and it also introduces the definitive portrayal of Van Helsing by Peter Cushing, who is you know forever tied to Christopher Lee because of these films, because of the Sherlock Holmes films. Because of the Frankenstein... Because of how much they worked together and how great they great were pairing. together. Yeah, yeah they
1: there's such know, a great pairing. That's one of the great acting pairs of all time, I feel. You get Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing together. Even when Christopher Lee was just being the fully bandaged mummy and Peter Cushing is shooting him with a shotgun.
2: Yeah, instant chemistry between the two of them no matter what. And the studio knew it was money because those guys were so good together. But Christopher Lee's Dracula really encompasses everything that you want to see in Dracula over each of the films. And the films make such an effort to incorporate the mythology from Bram Stoker's novel and further it into those movies. Uh, you know, the horror of Dracula is what kicked it off. Uh, now, in that movie, they, they changed the ending a bit, whereas in the novel, they kill Dracula with the use of a bowie knife. In this one, Van Helsing is smart enough to feign that he's been knocked out or choked unconscious by Dracula, forms a cross out of two silver candlesticks and exposes Dracula to direct sunlight and turns him to dust. Uh, Dracula returns in Prince of Darkness, and this is a kind of a 180 where Dracula is just a feral animalistic creature who hardly speaks, yet he's such a presence that he's immediately got women seduced when he runs into them, and is a ruthless killer when he encounters anybody trying to stand in his way, and in, in a lot of ways that's kind of the definitive portrayal of the character for me is Dracula, Prince of Darkness, which I believe was released in 1966, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that's what it that, says. And, there. Yeah, and that was actually a film without Cushing as his protagonist, and it, it, so really that film fell completely on the shoulders of Christopher Lee. And he just slam-dunked it, and I've never seen a better portrayal before or since, including his other works, where you have films like uh, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave is his next one, and that's also Sans Cushing. And Scars of Dracula, which is actually the first film that they do with Dracula that shows him scaling the walls of castles and buildings like he does in the novel. Which
1: is one of the creepier aspects of dracula i mean i was happy when they did it with uh frank langella in the 79 version because you see him just well he just crawls i mean it's like spider-man but you know it's evil it's just another
2: go ahead imagine imagine the visual of those you know those bloodshot eyes completely red just crawling up and sitting outside your window staring in at you not not exactly the most comforting of visuals No, no, it isn't. Um. And really, unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, were not aware of the full mythology of the character. You know, they hadn't read the novel. They'd only seen the movies. So for that first iteration, for them to see that for the first time, of this guy scaling the walls, you know, as if he was Spider-Man, just another bit of terror added to the whole package.
1: Yeah, Christopher Lee was able to tap into the, you know, the feral, the animalistic, the pure predator side of Dracula that hasn't really been done well since then. You know, we uh, the next one I want to talk about specifically is the Francis Ford Coppola version, uh Bram Stoker's Dracula, which features a phenomenal cast with Gary Oldman as Dracula, Anthony Hopkins as Van Helsing, Keanu Reeves as board faced Jonathan Harker, Winona Ryder as Mina. It's a great cast. It's a really good movie that I that I enjoy, but what you get in that movies and a lot of other ones, you know, they don't get the you know, the hunter, they don't get the predator, they don't get the this guy will tear your throat out without a second thought, really, that you get with, especially Christopher Lee doing it. I mean, that version of the guy who will just kill everything in sight because he feels like it is just kind of lost in the modern world of, you know, Twilight and Anne Rice and all of the other young adult pop culture appeal to teenage girls, vampires. This vampire in the
2: first, fiction that we have. Yeah, and even, even going back to horror of Dracula, which is Lee's first portrayal of the character. In, in the very beginning of the movie, when Jonathan Harker ar- arrives at, the, at Castle Dracula, and at one point a bride of Dracula comes and tries to bite him, and Dracula fends her off, I was scared to death the first time I saw it. I was, I was probably about seven years old, six or seven years old, and I'm you know covering my eyes while my dad's sitting there on the couch laughing at me. And I'm, you know, telling him to tell me when it's all when I can look. And so he says, I I say, you know, can I look down? He goes, yes. And I uncover my eyes, and I see these blood-red eyes and this, you know, blood-stained mouth, and I've been scarred ever since. Your father pulled a Bart Simpson on you. I prefer to think of it as Bart Simpson rips off my dad, but, you know. Either way. So uh,
1: if you would talk for a little bit about uh, the Gary Oldman version that we see in the 1992 Uh, Francis Ford Coppola uh, movie. He's portrayed as the tragic hero in that, and kind of instead of the villain. And that you get a lot of that Uh, lately. You know, we talk, you know, appealing to the masses, and the reality that you know, young adult fiction and teenage girls make up, well, teenage girls and middle-aged girls who are single, middle-aged women. They make up a large amount of market share as far as the world goes. So when you so portraying vampires in a light that appeals to them, you're immediately going after a large percentage of the population. And so I'm just curious what you felt about Gary Oldman's version of Dracula. Personally, my favorite part about that whole, well, one of my favorite parts, is that they actually correctly display him aging backwards, which is a big theme from the novel. He starts out when Harker meets him first in Transylvania. He's very—he's a very old man. He looks very much like, he's very insect-like. He very, uh, for those of you who've seen Nosferatu, he resembles Count Orlok. He's this very old, kind of broken-down man. And then as he feeds and as he, he becomes stronger and he becomes younger, he looks younger, he looks more fit, his hair goes from gray to black, his skin tight, you know, he just ages backwards. And its it was really nice. I mean, Christopher Lee actually did a version, I forget which one, that had him aging backwards as well, but it was really nice to someone touch on that particular aspect of it. So what were your thoughts on that whole, that movie in general and, again, specifically kind of Gary Oldman? I, I think Gary
2: Oldman is arguably the best actor of his generation and he's capable of pulling anything off because he's one of those guys who commits so fully to a role and he's willing to do and try anything to make it work. And I, I, I do think he did a great job in you know Bram Stoker's Dracula with the portrayal of that. And, you know, to to be in such a powerful ensemble cast and to still be pointed out as the focal point, says a lot about how well you did in the eyes of your public. Uh, The the aging backwards process was something that they never really did a full justice to in any movie. They tried it and kind of done minor versions of it here and there, but they they really went full-born with the effects. And to see Oldman, you know, look so different throughout, it's kind of the staple of his career because he's always been something of a chameleon with adapting his look to the look of the character going to, you know, various extremes. And you point out, he he has an almost insect-like appearance to start with. He's, he's got the chalky white skin and he looks as well, though he's nine years old.
1: the, uh, the much uh, mocked and played upon, that big hair, that two-part... Yeah, the, the big hair wig. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and, and, you know, he is... the he looks as though if you poke him, he's going to crumble to dust. But, you know, as they gradually have him feeding and his appearance keeps changing, he gets younger looking, gets more athletic looking, grows the longer hair, the goatee, starts wearing the glasses and the dignified clothing. And he he, he really kind of supersedes the scenery and everything else going on because you're so focused on him. And that's, that's a credit to Gary Oldman's magnetism and his understanding of the role and what it requires. A lot of the art of playing Dracula, and we've seen it from the guys who did it the best, is subtlety in in your motions and subtlety in your movements because you know you're the focal point. So you don't have to be out there and, you know, outrageous. You can do things in a very simple, subtle manner, and everyone will still pay attention to you. And it'll make you stand out as opposed to the guys who have to, you know, have their arms extended outward and tape flailing in every scene. And that's what one of the strengths of Oldman's portrayal was more than anything. And to be honest, my favorite scene from that movie actually is not one of him doing a true vampire sequence, but when they show him transforming into a wolf for the first time in London and the way it's shot is very beautiful and very different from any other way they've shown it. But Oldman really succeeded despite anybody else. And I think even even if he didn't have that star studded with, with with Anthony Hopkins, with, you know, even Keanu Reeves, who was still trying at that point, and went on Winona Ryder. I think the movie you know, we made still works really good. Him,
1: jokes about Keanu Reeves being, you know, wooden-faced, and the woodpecker can land on his head, and he just, yeah, it comes by every now and then. I mean, there was a time in his career when he was you know, putting forth effort, when he was a prospect, when he was thought of very well, and this was actually during that time. So, you know, he wasn't, you know, he was actually... A contribution to this movie, rather than a detriment.
2: Yeah, and I, I but I think even without everybody there, the movie still would have worked just because of how good Gary Oldman was, and because of his understanding of how to portray the character and do it justice, which hadn't been seen at that point really since Frank Langella had played him, and that was you know almost fifteen years prior to that. Uh, the only one
1: that, yeah, that one came out in ninety two. Uh, the Frank Langella version came out in, ni- in seventy nine. And between then you had a lot of comedic roles as far as Dracula was concerned. I mean, you had oh okay, we're we're going to get into some of these that you might categorize as bad, but because they're Dracula in kind of comedic roles, I think you have to kind of look at them in a different way. Between 79 with Frank Langella and 92 with Gary Oldman,
2: you Are we had bring up the Monster Squad.
1: Yes, cuz the Monster Squad came out in the 80s. You also had the Romantic comedy, Love at First Bite with uh, George uh, Hamilton. Hamilton. And not too long after, so filmed about the same time, more or less, as uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, you had the Dracula Dead and Loving It with Leslie Nielsen. So, kind of a mixed bag there, but uh, let's go ahead, since it came out first, let's go ahead and start with Dracula Dead and Loving It with George Hamilton in the romantic comedy spoof. How would you feel about uh... the deep pan of George Hamilton? I mean, e- even in comedy, George Hamilton taking on Count Dracula—that's
2: uh, the the intentional cheap laugh right there. Is you get an actor who's more well known than anything for his tan, and what do you get him to play? A guy who can't move around in the sunlight. Perfect, it works. Let's go with it. And, and it, it's just so so initially surreal at that point that you know this is not a movie you're you're gonna have to think a lot about during. Dracula at this point is resurrected during the disco era and falls in love with a disco model hostess named Cindy Sundown. Is her her, you know, name played by Susan Saint James. Uh, her her on again off again boyfriend slash psychiatrist Jeffrey is seen as a nut in a kook because he believes the guy is Dracula and that he's gonna turn Cindy into a vampire and he won't let that happen. It it, it kind of does a good job of giving you an idea of what would really happen if somebody was trying to tell you that there's a vampire loose, and especially if it was Count Dracula, what the reaction would be to them. You would laugh at them, look at them like an idiot, and want them locked up in a rubber room. And it, 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 it's, well, some would consider it bad because George Hamilton kind of does his best Bela Lugosi impression and gets the cheap laughs in. It's a lot of fun, and I don't, I don't have a problem with this movie at all. I, I it, It's made specifically for laughs, if you don't understand that just by the casting of George Hamilton as Dracula, I have no reason to speak to you, but it it's fun. It was to capitalize on the Dracula craze that Frank Langella started, okay, they had a big hit, let's make a laugh about it, it you see it in Hollywood all the time, this was no different, and I thought it was a blast. It's uh, You know, one of
1: the pitfalls of something being in public domain is that you do get a lot of comedy that can fall into the into that character, and... It's not that Dracula can't be funny, and I personally have no problem with Dead with uh, Love at First Bite or Dead and Loving It with Leslie Nielsen, because I, well, I'm a I'm a Mel Brooks sucker. I mean, not everything he's ever done I find to be amusing and good for a laugh, but a lot of it I a lot of it I find very funny, and I don't have a problem with Dracula being used in a comedy movie because it happens to everybody, you know. I mean you can take a character like dracula and you can use them in a comedic movie because in, in part because they're so entrenched especially at that point as being, you know, kind of a bad guy. Well, here let's have some fun with it and I thought it worked as being funny. I mean, you know, if you can't have a sense of humor about things like that, then you know, what's the point? I mean, I'm a huge fan of zombies. I can I laugh like crazy at Shaun of the Dead to this day. You know, I I mean you have to even these things that you love and if you love even if you love them for being you know the opposite of a comedic setting you have to have if it's done right it can be quite funny I mean that's one of the things that I love about Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein you have all of these I mean you have an all-star cast there you have Bela Lugosi back as Dracula you have of course the comedic genius of Abbott and Costello you have Lon Chaney Jr as Larry Talbot the wolfman and you get all of these hilarious situations but you never see the monsters being mocked you know you never see the wolfman take a pie to the face so to you know and when you can do it correctly it it can be so funny and that's one of the things that you know stuff like love First for or dead and loving it managed to do they don't you know they don't mock it they have fun with it without mocking it and there's a big difference between you know What's the tagline from one of the Botchamania films? The subtle difference between laughing at and laughing with. And you can laugh with Dracula as long as you're not really laughing at him. So, uh, since we just mentioned it, what do you think about Dracula dead and loving it? I mean, I'm a huge fan of Brooks comedy, so you, you kind of know where I sit as far as that one goes. How did And Leslie Nielsen playing Dracula was just hilarious for all the wrong reasons in some ways, but, it was, but I still get a kick out of it.
2: Yeah, Le- Leslie Nielsen was an interesting choice. I... I... Watching the movie, you get it because Leslie Nielsen was so good with just absurd humor and police squad and the naked gun films and even slapstick stuff he can do get through. I, I think the real underscored star of that movie was Peter McNichol as Renfield. Just any scene he's in, you will die laughing. And to be honest, his portrayal of Renfield is very much accurate from the novel and from Dwight Frye's performance in the original Dracula film. It's just amped up to the point with the physical comedy taking the absurdity of it to another level. But, uh, you know, again, a good tongue-in-cheek laugh at, you know, laugh at the right aspects of what makes the character unintentionally funny at times, and it's one of the, it's again, it's the art of not appreciating the character while making you laugh with the character. That's the key to doing it. And Mel Brooks has done great spoofs before, so it was Incapable Hands. You look at movies like Blazing Saddles, which spooks the Westerns, and you know, history Frankenstein. of the world. Young Frankenstein, which he had done, you know, 20 years earlier, in the same manner again, favorites. brilliant. Again, just a brilliant movie with, you know, the right leading guy for the part, and you know, in that, in one case it was Leslie Nielsen, who's gotten, who's a proven comic genius, and the other it was Gene Wilder, another proven comic genius.
0: Oh, but come on, I Say saw that Peter
2: movie. Peter Boyle as the creature. Also, was Lang. Deserving of praise.
1: No, no, I'm lying. I watched that entire movie for the five-minute segment with Gene Hackman as the blind priest.
2: Hey, guys.
1: Where are you going? I was
2: going to make espresso. Yeah, but, but again, you know, Mel, Mel Brooks, capable hands. The director of Low at First Bite knew exactly what to do. The, these are iterations where you're, you're not depreciating, is the best word I can think of, the characters involved. You're getting fans of the character to have fun with them that they don't normally get to have because... You can't be serious all the time. You have to sit back and have a laugh. And if you can do that with a character you love and you're invested in, why not? And these are movies that are proof that it's so popular and so loved that it can last through comedy iterations and still have a loyal fan following.
1: Well, it can go through comedy iterations and still come back and be an absolutely terrifying character when handled properly. Uh, same time frame more or less we would be remiss not to mention the 1980's cult classic The Monster Squad with Duncan Regger as Dracula confession time for me I've seen Monster Squad once I was at a family reunion in New Mexico we were just hanging out watching some movies, somebody put it in never seen it before, never heard of it before Uh, Okay, comedy is a very subjective thing first and foremost I think everyone is aware of that I don't have a lot of tolerance, personally, for stupid things, which is one of the, which is a dangerous thing in today's society because stupidity abounds. The first, so watching that in the beginning, it was very hard for me to kind of get a read on it, for me to decide, you know, okay, is this going to be good or bad? I mean, kind of like if you see, you know, it gets compared a lot to The Goonies and it falls into that same kind of tonal movie. It took me a while for me to understand kind of, how the movie was playing itself and at that point i started enjoying it but it again it, it if i'd known more about it i mean if i found a copy uh, and watched it again today i'd probably enjoy it more than i did then but a lot of people love uh, i said that when i said about you know the lost boys um what uh, you know, with Kiefer sutherland and uh, as the you know the vampire and everybody kind of goes you know oh man that, that's such a great vampire movie i love everything about it and my response has always been, you know, I can understand why you feel that way. I have to disagree with you. A lot of people love Monster Squad, and I think a lot of that has to do with seeing it as kind of a You see it when you're at an impressionable age, and it's such a fun movie for you know, younger kids that it sticks with you. And when you become older, you know, you still have kind of the rose-colored glasses as far as it goes. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not trying to be negative about it here. But it just, so when I first saw it, it played really weird, and I had a hard time, and it wasn't, I mean, there were a couple of sequences where, you know, because Dracula is still the bad guy despite all of the other, you know, you got every other major monster ever in this particular film, and Dracula's the one in charge of all of them, so he's still, it it was just really hard for me to get a read on it, so I probably didn't enjoy it as much as I could have. Um, I, I want your impressions of that movie on the whole, and in particular that version of Dracula.
2: Yeah, you you kind of stole my thunder because I was, you know, what I was going to say is there's a certain appeal that movies have when you do see them at a younger age that that you always retain some kind of a fondness for them because you remember how much fun you had watching it as a kid. And I think this is definitely a movie that defines that. Uh, You know, I, I saw this when I was very young, probably about seven years old, and I had a blast while I was watching it as a kid, so... You know, they rarely ever play it on TV. It just got released on DVD for the first time a few years ago after, you know, and, and versions of the videotape were trading on eBay for like $100, $125 a pop, which kind of, you know, it, it's a limited print, which on one hand, but it also explains the popularity it had amongst tape traders. And I, I and think a lot of get fun money to be at, popular. I, I think a lot of the fun to be had is if you're a kid seeing this movie but, because it, it's not really a, an overly serious movie. And the problem is it it doesn't straddle the line too well between what it wants to be, whether it wants to be a serious monster movie or whether it wants to be a, a Goonies-type movie. And, you know, like there's scenes in it where they're, they're the team of kids who refer to themselves as the Monster Squad are accosted by the Wolfman, and the token fat kid of the group, Horace, kicks the Wolfman in the crotch and hurts him, and the quote of the movie is, Wolfman's wolfman got Hearts." yeah. And, and, I mean, that's fun when you look back on it, but when you see it for the first time, it's it, if you're, you know, above the age of 13 seeing this movie, it's not really going to have that same effect. And I think that's part of the thing why not everybody takes to this movie. I'm a huge fan of Duncan Rivera from the time he was playing Zorro on television in the early 90s, the late 80s, uh, because I was a huge fan of that show growing up, and I've always loved the Zorro character. Uh, right. he, he... We're on the same page there. <laughs> what was that?
1: We're on the same page there. Zorro's one of my all, okay. one of my all-time favorite. I used to watch the old black and white reruns when I was a kid that had him, that had Zorro in it and one of my favorite movies of all time to this day is Mask of Zorro with
2: Anthony Hopkins and Antonio Banderas. Yeah, and, and that's where I initially knew the guy who was playing Dracula from I was like this is Zorro, this is Duncan Riegger cuz he had played him for years on the Family Channel, which has now evolved over several iterations of the ABC Family, but he was best known for playing Zorro on television, and it's him playing Dracula. And I, I I, don't think he was a bad Dracula by any means. I think he played a different kind of Dracula because in the movie there was a very specific agenda involved with his character where he wanted to open a portal to allow all the monsters' dominion over the world so they could rule and the humans would be subjected to their rule and they could do whatever they like. So it's, it's very much, you know, he has one direction to go with. There's not a whole lot of other things for him to do, like vampirize an entire town or anything like that. But I, I think he his performance kind of gets lost in the mix here because he's playing the role straight in a movie that doesn't have any balance between its comedy and its terror, or lack thereof, in many cases. Uh, well, I, the Wolfman for me, movie becomes enough. For me, one of the issues was,
1: you know, like you touched on the tone of the movie. I mean, you have the fat teenager, you know, young teenager, who kicks the Wolfman in the crotch and is able to incapacitate it. A few minutes later, you have Dracula walking blissfully through Town Square, ripping out, you know, killing police officers left and right. You're like, Wait a minute. You know, I mean, yeah, it's just kind of awkward at times as far as that goes.
2: Yeah, they're, 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 the team directing this and producing this didn't really have a clear goal in mind as to whether they really wanted to make it a laugh or really wanted to make it a, a good horror movie with a couple of tense-breaking moments where it's not as serious all the time and you're not on the edge of your seat the whole time. You kept, some, you kept some rest in there, for lack of a better term. They're, they break it up a little bit. Uh, Duncan Revere plays the part of Dracula, you know, with a very odd agenda for the Dracula character in most of his iterations. He's, like we said, he's trying to use this amulet to open a portal to allow all the monsters to come through and, you know, control the Earth. That's really his whole purpose, and there's not a lot of other things for him to do in the movie. He doesn't have a tremendous amount of screen time. And what's otherwise is a fair... You know, there's nothing bad about his performance, I felt, but the movie itself doesn't do him any favors. And as a result, he kind of gets lost in the shuffle without ever getting to really have the chance to shine or fail if given the opportunity because it's just never presented to him because the tone of the movie is so all over the place. Uh,
1: and that's... That, you know Blending horror and comedy together very well is such a difficult thing to do. I mean, I'll freely admit one of the movies that kind of like that as far as horror comedies go that I will always look back on with rose-colored glasses, and I can, to this day, watch, and I think it blends them very well, and that's the movie Tremors, which, to this day, I can watch that movie loop to loop. I can actually quote almost the, the whole dialogue of it from start to finish, and I can just enjoy it, and it seems like that movie was, you know, again, you're trying to find the right tone for it, and it's very difficult to hit horror comedy right, and you know, when you have people that do it and do it well, it's it's genius. I mean, you know, Young Frankenstein again, more of a com- more of a comedy than a horror, but it takes the horror essences and just makes them comedic. Uh, Shaun of the Dead, Army of Darkness, and to some extent, um, Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. Again, when it's done right, it's great, but when it's done poorly, elements of it really, really suffer and I think it's a credit to most of the people involved with Monster Squad that, despite elements of it being really poor, it has you know people still remember it. It still stand
2: to some degree. It still stands up. Yeah, and I'll always have you know a special spot in my heart for that movie because I enjoyed it so much as a kid. You know, the same way I enjoyed movies like uh, you know, and hey you can show some of these movies to your buddies when you're older and you're like, no, you never saw this movie? Come on, you got to see it. It's great, it's great, it's great. You play it for them, like, uh, but they weren't there at the time and the place that you were when you saw it, so it doesn't have that same appeal. Uh, I'm lucky enough to the point where it had that appeal for me, and so I can enjoy it for what it is and, and look back on it fondly, but I can certainly understand why a lot of people wouldn't be able to. I mean, like I said, if I were to watch it again, I could probably get more enjoyment out of it than I
1: did the first time just because I wasn't familiar enough with everything going on with it. But you know there are some movies that you love you know that're like the, that you love in spite of their flaws, and there's nothing wrong with that i mean to, to all the monster squad fans out there, and I know there's a lot of you we're not bashing the movie, we're not you know trying to ape on it or anything you know it's there's nothing wrong with liking that particular movie i mean there are some things that if you say you like I will roll my eyes and think that. Your contributions to the human gene pool should be removed. That's not one of them. You know, you're safe liking that movie. There's nothing really wrong with it. It, it just could have been better in a lot of ways. And I'm actually surprised they haven't tried to remake it at this point. There, there's
2: always been rumblings. Like once they once they did the Fright Night remake, that they thought this was going to follow, and it, it hasn't. And I think I think part of that is because there's an apprehension that it's going to have the same effect that people who watch the older version of it now and don't get that warm, fuzzy feeling because they didn't see it as kids, I think that's the main apprehension about it and that, you know, the horror genre, the way it's evolved over the past 20 years, it, it, it's a very different kind of film market now in terms of what you can put out there successfully.
1: Yeah, you know, if they were to, yeah, you know, I'd go so far as to say this, even if you took the original Monster Squad that sits now and gave it a re-release in theaters and you put it up there against Random Saw number 37. Random Saw number 37 would probably do better financial. And that, that's a sad statement to both what people are willing to pay to see and how far the Saw series fell, because I love the first two a great deal, but they all just went downhill so much after that. But the the whole Saw series is slightly, it's a different topic, even though I absolutely love Tobin Bella and his portrayal of Jigsaw, which I will get into at some point on one of these. All right, we've got 30 minutes left. There are still some other versions of Dracula that I want to discuss with Pat, but to anyone listening live, I'm not sure how many of you there are, if we've missed something, if you disagree, if you have a different point of view, first time ever, I'm going to open this particular show up to call-ins. If Uh you wish to call in, uh, uh, fair warning, uh, Pat, if you wish to flee early, (laughs) I will understand, because you'll also avoid me giving you grief about your comic book podcast which is going to be a running joke until it gets off the ground, just like part one of my Terminator series, which is coming at some point. If anyone wishes to call in and feel free to tell us we're wrong, give us your different opinion, I ask that you have a minimum of profanity. If you choose to call in, the number is 323-657-0901. If you're listening to a recorded version of this and you think we're wrong, feel free to leave messages, comments. I welcome criticism as long as it's constructive. If you want to say something, if you think we're off base, if you have a version of Dracula that we haven't touched on yet, and you want to get out there, I'm looking at the board right now. The number again: three two three six five seven zero nine zero one. Give us a call, and we'll see how the, and we'll see how this goes. Uh, first time I'm going to try this out is ma- as letting people call in for this one. Yeah, you've invited you a, a maelstrom
2: of villagers carrying torches to chase us off. Is what you've done?
1: Hey, you know what? I'm willing to give it a shot. I mean. What's the worst that can happen? People keep calling in and they keep leaving them on mute.
2: I have the power you know, here, people. Robert, you love bad guys, but you say something like, what's the worst that could happen? Don't you know what that opens us up to?
1: Oh, believe me, I do.
2: Next thing I'm you're going to say, playing... is we'll be right back.
1: <laughs> we'll be right back. I'm off to go drink some beer and have sex and break all of the rules so that everything bad that could possibly happen to us will. When I do one of these things on Slashers, I have to also talk about Ghostface, even though he's been eight different people. So, other versions of Dracula. I'm curious as to your... and Okay, I'm going to take serious issue with this one. Uh, this particular version, I believe it's the fourth or fifth season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, has an episode where Buffy meets Dracula. I cannot stand that interpretation of Dracula. To me, it is everything that is wrong with vampires in general and Dracula portrayals in particular. And... I mean, at that point, you know, Joss Whedon, when he wants to, has a masterful touch as far as poking fun, at the same time giving credit to things that come from the past, like Dracula, like other vampire movies, other monster movies. His... that version of Dracula was so wrong, as far as I'm concerned, that it just... I... Ugh, it's just so bad for my money, as far as the Dracula portrayal goes. I mean... I'm, I want to get your thoughts on that, Pat. What do you, you know? That have you seen that episode? Do you have any thoughts? Am I way off base?
2: No, I, I think you're pretty much dead on. Um, when when I first, I actually first saw the episode when it first aired. I was still watching Buffy, as you know, it was live at the time. Still uh, watched the whole series run. Still watch it from time to time on Netflix when I need to, you know, something to watch. Uh, it's but, great to kill forty minutes. Most of yeah, them. And, and you know, the, I think this is an episode where. Maybe that Whedon had been kind of pestered by people. You know, this is called Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and you still haven't brought in Dracula. You still haven't brought in. Why haven't you done Dracula? Why haven't you done Dracula? I think this is Whedon kind of just telling everybody, you want Dracula here? I'm going to give you a lame, horrid Dracula so that you never ask to see him again. And that's pretty much what we got. Um, The fact that a castle appears out of nowhere in Sunnydale and seemingly no one is bothered by this, it kind of gets shed light on towards the end of the show's run, why that happens, but, you you know, at the time, it's very silly. Uh, They really try to take things backward and take every bad stereotype from previous Dracula portrayals possible and have him, you know, just this kind of a... This is almost Twilight Dracula before there was a Twilight in many ways because he seems less concerned with, with... raising hell and having a bloody good time as usual, and more concerned with moving very, like, in slow motion, like a, like a doing the Axl Rose snake dance whenever he's on screen, and trying to do sexy faces with pouty lips, and at no point do you really take this guy seriously. Uh, the whole idea with him drinking from Buffy and her willingly allowing it is kind of surreal and stupid in a lot of ways. I know a lot of fans of the show complained about that, because Buffy's supposed to be a strong, independent female character, and yet she lets somebody drink from her again. And the repeated stakings at the end where he, you know, in the, in the Whedonverse, when you stake a vampire, it immediately crumbles to dust, whereas Dracula is able to completely reform himself immediately after, and Buffy just stakes him again, and, and he's about to reform again. And she says, you know, I'm standing right here, and he just kind of drifts away. and it It never goes anywhere. Nothing positive comes out of it. I blame Josh Whedon for Twilight. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, that that's an interesting point of view.
2: But you know, Josh sins, Whedon was as many doing the Axel Rose Snake Dance.
1: You know, for as many good things as Josh Whedon has put out there, and he's put, you know, I love Avengers, I love Angel, I really love the movie Cabin in the Woods. But for as many good things as he's done, he's also, you know, I mean, Firefly and Serenity, both very good. Then you got to counterbalance that with seasons four, Dollhouse. six, and seven of Buffy, Dollhouse. I mean, you know, there's there's some really good stuff, but when he misses, boy does he miss hard. I mean, that's just yeah. And you know that you know, you hit it right on the head. You know that was like the va- the Twilight vampire Dracula before Twilight came out, and ugh, it's just such an odd portrayal. I mean, just
2: all the way around. I will say, and I never cared for the Xander character in that show. That was one episode where he actually amused me when he was turned into basically pseudo-Renfield.
1: Yeah, uh, that might have been one of the episodes where Nicholas Brendan's twin was subbing for him. because That's the only explanation I can come up with, with Nicholas Brendan being tolerable. I actually did sub for him in a couple of those when he was sick or something, and they had an episode where he played evil version of Xander. I mean, personally, I was kind of sad they never did a different version of Dracula for... Angel because the Angel television show I feel is superior to Buffy and has the whole world that Angel lives in has a very different feel to it and I would have loved to see
2: a Dracula in that unit. It, it would have made more sense going into the Angel backstory too when you find out this guy was the scourge of Western Europe and especially during the years they said he was I believe it starts in the 1600s when Angel, when Liam was turned into Angel Angelus, and kind of started wreaking havoc with Darla as you know, his sire and just you know, the Dracula character has been around since God, I believe. He he said to you know he said to have existed since the days of Vlad the Impaler, if it is indeed Vlad the Impaler, which would take you back to you know very primitive Wallachia, and certainly there was some point he could have crossed paths with, with Angelus in Europe, or even in you know bringing him back into the main you know continental United States at some point, like they did with Buffy. Why couldn't you have him interact with Angel too in Los Angeles the way they? had so many other monsters react to them. Okay, now, one of the other reasons I brought this
1: particular, I wanted to do this particular uh, topic about now is, well, for one, uh, over at The Long Road to Ruin, they just did uh, the Twilight series with Mark Radulich, his wife, Melissa, and, of course, Sean Comer. So we're kind of made a vampire week out of the last couple of weeks. I also wanted to specifically talk about, and I'm not sure if you're, interested in this at all but the upcoming dracula television series are you aware of this am i am i going to be going by myself for a couple of minutes here talking about this it's scheduled to be to go later this year and go into 2014 are you aware of anything with that uh, as far as that goes you want to talk about are you leery of that are you anxious for it i mean your thoughts on that
2: I'm extremely leery of it. Uh, I've seen the previews. I I tend to read the trades whenever I see them. Uh, You know, our our site, 411 Mania, always posts some type of news regarding it, usually at least once a month because it's been very slow in development, to say the least, uh, and constantly has been shifted around as far as its debut. I'm always leery of a television version of, you know, a character like Dracula because it's very easily mishandled in a lot of ways where they tend to make him more of an anti-hero or a romantic force than the character's true nature. And, it, and you get turned off by that. Uh, did, you, did you happen to follow the series that aired in the very early 90s? It only ran for two years. This Dracula the series which followed Dracula as a European businessman who was dealing with Gustav Helsing as his main antagonist and Gustav's two American nephews from Philadelphia. I did not see any of that particular one. I'm aware of its existence, but I haven't
1: bothered to track it down.
2: Yeah, I actually found it at, at a Coconuts video when they were still, when those still existed on DVD. Used for six bucks a piece, both seasons, and grabbed them. It was kind of a fun portrayal of Dracula, and while the series was a little bit tongue in cheek and aimed at a younger audience because it's you know two three of the, actually the main characters were young teens in the show. The portrayal of Dracula was very good. He was absolutely the villain. He was uh, a European businessman named Alexander Lucar who ran a multimedia conglomerate and had accumulated vast wealth through the years and constantly found out, changed his identity. And, but that was a smart take on him to a, to a not-that-smart audience. So it, it made sense in the context, and it was, it was fairly well done. This series I'm very apprehensive of for a number of reasons, one of them being... You know, the recent vampire craze is mainly due to the Twilight portrayal of vampires. That works for Twilight, and that's fine. That's not what you want to see from The Prince of Darkness. And so immediately, I'm very leery of that. And I, you know, my main belief is that the vampire, any vampire movie that's come out since then, I've always had to kind of be very apprehensive about being excited for because I always feel like they're going to portray it more as a Twilight continuation than they would being true to the character's nature. So right away I'm apprehensive there. And the other reason is because it's been so shifted around and pushed around and pushed back. And at times there will be a month where you hear news on the series almost daily, and then two months will go by and you hear nothing. So I'm I'm not totally committed to thinking this is going to be awesome. Well, I was leery
1: just because, I mean, there have been a couple of decent vampire-themed television shows over the year. Um, my parents and I kind of grew up watching Oh, my parents were grown obviously but uh forever night which i still enjoy uh there was a canadian television series ah, something about blood i can't remember the title but there have been some decent ones there have also you know there've been some bad ones and it's and a lot of dracula hinges not just not just on the writing but also on the actor and i believe they have jonathan rice myers uh, set to play this particular version of Dracula. And for anyone who hasn't seen him, and I am not familiar with mo- with much of his work... Is this the same guy from the Tudors? Yes. So that's what he's most well-known for. The only thing I've right. actually seen him in was one of the guys from Mission Impossible 3. I haven't bothered. I haven't seen the Tudors yet. Read the series. I just haven't been interested in it. So does that help you at all? Do, does that make you more leery? Does it give
2: you a notion of comfort? Um, it, it doesn't really do anything to reassure me one way or another. Um, I saw a couple episodes of The Tudors. My cousin was actually very big on the show and loved it while it was on uh, on Showtime. I caught episodes here and there. I thought it was an okay show, but the thing is, the role he was playing is very not Dracula. So it's it's not always a good barometer to tell whether or not he's going to be fine in this role. Some guys do well with certain types of parts, and they completely flop in others. Uh, not everybody can be Robert De Niro and be a chameleon or Gary Oldman, for lack of a, for you know, for reference, and be able to do pretty much any and everything. Uh, so I, I know he's got experience at least. I know he's he knows what it's like to be the central character of a series and have to have the weight of the series put on him. Hopefully that leads to him taking the role very seriously and doing it justice. But it, it's not a big reassuring factor to me. No oh, fair.
1: I mean, I would be more I think personally I'd be more less leery if NBC wasn't doing Hannibal because the amount of violence and gore to be fair, there's not a lot but you, you there's not a lot of gore as far as you know when you understand gore, but there's a lot of violent content on the television series Hannibal which to be fair as there should be. Hannibal Lecter without blood and violence is just not Hannibal Lecter, I feel. And, you know, they've caught some heat for it because there's a fair amount of it. And if they didn't already have that, you know, kind of stigma going with them into a Dracula television series, I'd be more inclined to go, okay, you know, they're not afraid to push the envelope a little bit. They've got a show that's pushing the envelope. You know, do you push it a little further with a different show or do you rein back? I mean, let me put it like this. If this was on AMC, I wouldn't worry about. I mean, if the people at AMC were behind a Dracula show, I'd be... I'd be excited. I'd be happy because they can get away with more as far as what they can put on television as opposed to a major broadcaster like NBC can. I mean, you get more, just for a frame of reference, you get more violence and gore out of your average episode of The Walking Dead than you did through all of World War Z, for those of you who haven't seen it. It's safe. For my money, it's safe enough to take you know kids, too. My, uh, my whole family saw it together. I have two brothers who are just barely teenagers. And no problem at all. There's very little blood or violence, I mean, I don't recall seeing any off the top of my head, and, you know, if if it's a network that can push some stuff onto the airwaves, you know, I'm a little less leery about it, because they'll be able to at least do the character justice, and that's not... And again, if you're doing Dracula, you can do him different ways, and he can still be Dracula. I'm leery that they're going to turn Dracula into a Twilight vampire, essentially, and to me, that's not Dracula. I mean... I would almost be interested if someone did a version of Dracula within the Twilight universe, uh, just kind of to see how that would play. But you know, ter- there's a difference between Dracula in a different universe and turning Dracula into something to fit a st- to fit uh, notion, as far as that goes. So uh, that's my thoughts on that. Um, anything that we left out? Any uh, other video games, books, short stories, comics that you want to touch on right now? You know, I
2: mean, he he's in everything. There's, you know, there's no escaping Dracula in the pop culture milieu. You know, I I you know, you you can read countless novels, you can watch TV, you can watch movies, you can go through role-playing games, any any you know, any media medium is going to have some kind of reference or frame of reference for Dracula. Because he's so ingrained in pop culture and has been such an enduring character that you can find him in anything. I, You know, I personally as a kid enjoyed the movies. I enjoyed the Tomb of Dracula comic series from Marvel that kind of did a good job, you know, explaining all the years that movies don't touch on with them and various adventures with other pop culture characters. I mean, it's pretty surreal to see Dracula trading blows with the X-Men and the Mighty Four, but you got to see that through the magic of Marvel Comics. Uh, It's another thing we see him matching wits with Batman through DC and Sherlock Holmes through novels and the Puritan adventurer Solomon Kane and all the all these characters that he's come across. It's it's almost a rite of passage for a character once they become established that they'll cross paths with Dracula or a Dracula clone at some point. And, And you know he's become the barometer really for what a great villain is, and still nobody's really truly measured up to him as becoming that definitive villain. You have great villains throughout several areas. You know, you've got your Darth Vader, your Terminator's, all, all these great villains, but everything still, you know, even when the monster movies have died out, they will always attempt to make Dracula movies work because he's such an endearing character because he's the ultimate bad guy to the point where people want to always see a Dracula movie because they'll root for him to be killed, but they know that if the character ever truly stops being produced in books, movies and everything that the fun's over. Well, I said it at the top of the show and I absolutely
1: meant it that he is the most well known, the most prolific, and the best villain just across, you know, pop culture or any other culture by and large. You know, he's everywhere and, you know, anybody can be successful with Dracula if it's done properly. And you can't say that about a lot of other bad guys, other characters, other things of that particular nature. I mean Oh wait, are you kidding me? There's a version there's a version of Dracula played by Judd Hirsch that I haven't seen. Oh my gosh. I am missing out. I gotta find this thing. It now. was it was
2: a it was a very, very not so great T V movie and I believe nineteen eighty seven, done through Disney, ironically enough. Uh
1: yeah, the Halloween that almost wasn't or Dracula saved the world, apparently.
2: Yeah. Uh Alex Rieger himself, Judd Hirsch. Dear John, you know him from several T V shows. Wonderful actor. Plays a version of Dracula who is apparently from not Transylvania. Maybe He's a New York Queens. Jew, right? Yeah. <laughs> maybe 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 Regal Park in Queens. Uh but yeah, uh, I almost wasn't wasn't exactly the the best portrayal and I think probably the less said about it the better. Every every actor has a down point in their in their life, and that might have been Judd Hirsch's because it was in between Taxi and Dear John, so we'll give him a pass. I almost have to see that just to see Judd Hirsch play Dracula. <laughs> just for the absurdity of it. finding it, it. It's very difficult.
1: Oh, man. All right. Any other... I mean, you know, he's like well, you said, he's everywhere in every particular medium. Are there any other versions that you want to touch on before we close out? We're going to end a tad early, I think, but... No harm, no foul. There. So, any other, any other, any other, you know, thoughts on Dracula? Maybe actors you'd like to see play Dracula in a, in a setting, or you know, just anything that we haven't touched on as far as this goes that you want to touch on before we go into closeout mode here. I always
2: thought that if I could have had somebody play Dracula and like really done the character so some interesting justice, I would have always liked to see Jack Nicholson have played him when he was a few years younger. Jack Nicholson is just such a, 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 can be so sleazy, but in a, in a good way, and entertaining way. And just, and he knows it. Those eyebrows make him look inherently evil. The closest role he ever got to this was playing the devil in the Witches of Eastwick. But I think if he would have gotten to play Dracula at some point, it would have been so much fun from start to finish. And he probably would have just rocked it. Yeah, that
1: that's a shame that he never got to play it as far as I know. I mean, we could be wrong about that. Any contemporary actors that you'd like to see take it on? I mean, it's easy to kind of fantasy cast Heath Ledger now that he's passed on, but... Wow, okay. Guns blazing on that one.
2: Uh, uh,
0: you I know mean, what? Yeah. As I'm as, only being
2: quasi-facetious there. As long as you kept Tim Burton out of the mix, I think that could be a role that Johnny Depp could actually succeed with. If you had well, Johnny Depp can't be in a movie without Tim Burton. <laughs> You know what, I, I, Tim Burton has ruined what was once one of the better actors of our generation by just constantly putting him in crap and convincing him it's a good idea. Uh, but I think, if, I think if Johnny would have gotten away from Tim Burton, it could have been good. Uh, he, he seems to have a lot of the positive qualities that the people who played Dracula would have worked with. I think he could have done well. Um, as far as like the new generation, the new crop of actors who are up and coming... Unfortunately, nobody's really springing to mind immediately. Maybe Henry Cavill. Well, he could be Superman and Dracula. I, I and just, just thought he could like- had a good presence in Man of Steel, and he has he has the right kind of look where he can be imposing, but still, you know, can lure you in with a false sense of security. I I thought you know there's a shot maybe he could do something like that. Yeah, I I really liked him in Man of Steel.
1: I mean, but I also liked him in Immortals when he played Perseus. Not a very good movie, but I enjoyed his performance as far as that went. No, but, you know, that's also the point of them being actors, you know. We can fantasy cast all we want. At the same time, I don't think anybody would have pictured, you know, like Chris Evans as Captain America, and he did a great job with it. Or, to go back to what I said earlier, you know, Heath Ledger as the Joker, that raised a lot of eyebrows, and, you know, look what happened. I mean, that was pure magic between with him and Nolan working together. And that pretty much wraps up anything I would have to say about Dracula. I can't think of any other versions or whatnot that I want to hit on, so... Anything going on with you, Pat? What's what's going on with you this week? When's your comic book podcast coming up?
2: Hardy Har Har. Not uh, letting it yeah. go. No, not letting it go. I may even end up doing a one-man broadcast just to get it off the ground so so we can stop having a question asked by Robert, you know, whenever I guest star on the show and whenever Radulich wants to bring it up on the 411 Ground and Pound radio show that airs every Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern time, except for last Sunday because we were all busy watching Money in the Bank. But, uh, yeah, we're working on that. Working on producing a stand-up comedy special that I am putting blood, sweat, and tears into daily, uh, you know, hopefully I can get it off the ground by next year and really have it polished and well done and I can find the space to do it with. Uh, kind of a goal I've had in mind for a long time and finally putting the work into it to get it down. I wish you good luck with that. Uh, stand-up comedy is not easy, and I,
1: you have to, there has to be some inherent respect for anyone who gets up there and does their routine unless you're Jamie Kennedy in which case please shoot I, I kid i give Jamie Kennedy a hard time but he's infinitely less offensive than other stand-up comics and actors not his mo not his movies his movies have been pretty much universally awful but him as a stand-up and him as a person there are much le- there are many people who I would throw stuff at i don't think he's Oh, nice okay so nothing else coming up uh you planning on returning to write for 411 anytime soon we got an open slot
2: actually uh I got a what the next two weeks unfold like uh, and potentially at that point I could come back into the four one one fold provided the stars align and Larry Zonka still on board so hopefully we can get something going with that real soon. Well I look forward to you coming back Uh, you know we got a bunch of new writers
1: all of them very good you know it's just you know we can always use more talented writers speaking of anybody listening if you want to talk- if you want to write about m m a entertainment wrestling, professional wrestling games music uh look at four one one mania dot com we're usually looking for writers uh no we don't pay, but a couple of people have access to the private jet every now and then even though jeff Harris has been hogging it lately as for me uh tomorrow locked in the guillotine will be up I was going to take another look at Anderson Silva, but since everybody else has been doing that, I decided against it. Instead, you'll get some discussion of news and some things I would like to see changed in the world of MMA, specifically in the UFC. I will be on this Sunday's 411 Ground and Pound radio show. There's 9 p.m. Eastern every Sunday, more or less, at, 7, at 9 o'clock Eastern. Uh, that's going to do it for the 7 o'clock for, Mountain
2: Time, folks.
1: I live in Mountain Time. It's 7 o'clock Mountain. Uh, I, that's going to do it for me for probably about a week and a half. I am flying out to Missouri to help my dad move, because I'm the good son, and I do that type of stuff. So I'll be doing that. Uh, so there won't be an episode of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy next week. I know, I know, it's very sad, but I'm sure you all get over it. I've missed weeks before, and we're
2: going to have to find a way not, to get along without you.
1: Yes, I'm sure you will. Uh, Mark Radlitz might take this over for one week just to screw with me and give me a bad name, because I'm beating him out on listens. I told you, my my Hannibal Lecter solo podcast has right about 700 listens right now, and he hasn't come close to that number in a long time, so ha, ha Mark, if you're listening. I'm still beating you. Uh, but yeah, I'll be gone, so there won't be one of these next week, and odds are there will not be a locked in the guillotine column, just because I'll be helping my dad move. That should take all total probably about a week and a half to two weeks. I also have to finish writing my blurbs for the upcoming section in the MMA zone. Ugh, and I'm Trying to figure, you know, maybe I'm not a real MMA fan, but I just can't get into the uh, Eddie Alvarez versus Michael Chandler fight. Maybe I'm just a horrible person. I don't know. All right, we're going to end a couple of minutes early, but since I've run over every other time, we'll call that a win for this one. Uh, So for Pat Mullen, who may be returning to 411 Mania shortly, and as he mentioned, you can hear every Sunday evening, 9 p.m. Eastern, on the 411 Ground and Pound radio show, I'm Robert Winfrey. I told you last time I'd have a sound clip to close this out. I have a sound clip to close this out. I'll see you in a couple of weeks, everybody. Have a good night.
0: So say good night to the bad guy.